this, uh, this day, believe it or not, uh, I wish to wish you a uh, Merry Christmas. And uh, because the church, the church's calendar, we are still in Christmas tide. Uh, the 12 days of Christmas starts from Christmas Day and goes all the way to January 6th. So as our Western culture marks time, tomorrow is the beginning of our next year, which I think is very appropriate that Christmas bookends the beginning of the new year and the end of the old year and uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so we cry out today, come Lord Jesus, come. And we look back over this past year thankful for the help that the Lord has given us each and every day for this past year. As uh, Samuel the prophet did that one time, lifting up that stone of remembrance and looking back at what the Lord had done, he said, the Lord has helped us this far. And we can say that about this year. The Lord has helped us from the beginning of our lives all the way to right here. He's been with us all the time. And since our culture marks the beginning of this next calendar year, uh, being tomorrow, not only can we remember what God has done and how faithful he has been, but we can look forward and hope to when he comes again. And we are one year closer now to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, anyways, Merry Christmas. Uh, before we go any further, if uh, you haven't brought your Bible with you, there are Bibles in front of your seating. And uh, we will be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. So if you're using the church's Bible here, uh, that's on page 1269. Second Timothy, chapter three, verses 14 through 17. Now, to give us a little bit of context, I'd like to ask a question. If you knew that your life was about to end and you had time that you knew of to prepare, how would you prepare? What would you say to your loved ones, your wife, your children, your friends? Is there any type of communication information that you would want to pass on? Is there any type of legacy that you would want to pass on? Well, this is the context of our particular passage. See, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, the second letter to Timothy while he was in prison in the Roman prison, uh, the emperor at the time was Nero, and Paul knew that uh, he was going to be executed by this corrupt government for preaching the gospel. 
And so he knew that his time was very limited and he wanted to pass along and encourage his protege, his young son in the faith, with some blasting words, a final charge to keep the faith, to keep the sound words and the sound teachings, the sound doctrine that he's grown up with and that he was taught also by the Apostle Paul himself that Timothy had shared with the Apostle Paul's ministry. And so this context then is the Apostle Paul is making preparations for his departure and he's wanting, he wants to prepare and have his protege be prepared for the continuance of the gospel ministry. So during this, we will cover not only the, the nature of Scripture, but also its function. And to do this then, let's stand and honor God's Word as we read from this passage of 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul to Timothy. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have brought us here this morning, this far, and we live in a nation that is free to read your word and to study your word. As we study your word this morning, may your Holy Spirit grant us the enlightening that we can understand what you want for us to understand today. And soften our hearts that we may be willing to lovingly obey and serve you and live our life in ways that is pleasing to you. All this we ask through our Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. So we see here that Timothy is being reminded by Paul of the faith that is grown in him through proper teaching from his grandmother and his mother and also through his partnership with Paul in the Christian gospel ministry. And he's wanting, he, Paul wants Timothy to be reminded and to take charge of that, to to grab on to it, to hold on to it, to hold fast to it. In a culture that is uh, 
being corrupted, in a culture that is declining, and also in a church that uh, the young churches that are starting to be infiltrated by teachers who don't hold fast to the right teachings of Scripture and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he reminds Timothy this by trusting in whom he received this teaching from, his mom, his grandparents, and from him. And then he also reminds Timothy of the nature of scriptures. Now, in some translations, you'll see that uh, it says all scripture is inspired. In our English translation, it says all scripture is breathed out. The Greek word itself from this passage just means God breathed. See, the, the older English, it says inspired, and, and then what we're seeing here, breathed out, uh, we, we, the, the root of that is spiros, meaning to breathe. When you breathe in, you inspire. When you breathe out, you expire. And then you breathe back in again, hopefully, you're inspiring again. And the last time on the face of this planet that you breathe out, that's when you are expired. So, but what Paul is reminding Timothy is that not of a breathing function of God, but he's reminding Timothy the authorship of the Holy Scriptures. Theopneustos, God breathed. God is the one that breathed the Scriptures. Yes, he had human instruments that were moved by the Holy Spirit to say what God wanted to say. But the scriptures are God's authorship. And as God being the author of the scriptures, he has the authority and the right to speak into our lives and to inform us of the things that are pleasing to him and our responsibilities to him. The author has the authority. So, that's very quickly the nature of the scriptures. What are the scriptures, are they supposed to do? What are they good for? They're profitable. They're advantageous, first of all, for teaching. So all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Now, when I was growing up, there was a, a song by a group called Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It said, teach your children well. And I can guarantee you that was not what Crosby, Stills, and Nash was talking about uh, in the Bible, for the, for the Bible, to teach your children well. But that's what God intends for us to teach our children the doctrines of Christian doctrines of the Scriptures and to raise our children in the admonition of the Lord. And it is not um, good for us to uh, be like the secular culture that will be willing to let your children just grow up until they can think for themselves and study for themselves and make their own decision on which religion to follow. 
the scriptures never give us that permission. We're reminded again, uh, Timothy's grandmother and, and mother raised Timothy in the knowledge of the Old Testament at that time, what we call the Old Testament today, the law and the prophets and the writings. Psalm 94, 12 said, Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. So the scriptures are that teaching then is that set of what um, gives us the knowledge on how to be in a right relationship with God. And in other English translations, we, we see then that it says it's profitable for the word doctrine. And a lot of us today in, in our culture are uncomfortable using the word doctrine because in churches it's a popular thing to say that doctrines divide. But the word that the, uh, the scripture is using right here that gets translated into that word doctrine actually means teaching. And our English word doctor uh, comes from the Latin phrase that uh, was labeling what we call doctors today, medical doctors or, or, or uh, psychological doctors or... Um, children's doctors, or the, the word doctor just meant teacher. That was from an era when doctors were considered to be teachers. And so we shouldn't be all that scared of, we shouldn't be all that scared of the word doctrine. There are two times that our Lord warns us about doctrine, and it's not about the doctrine of, uh, that we find in Scripture. The doctrine is the doctrine of men that have ulterior motives to their teachings. So Paul uses the word teachings or doctrine 21 times in the New Testament, where he's, he's telling Timothy, hold fast to the sound words, to the doctrines, to the teachings of Scripture. The... Uh, So anyway, what, uh, Paul writes in, in Romans, he says, whatever was written, the content of Scripture, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that's the same biblical word as, as gets used as doctrine. So that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written in the past in Scriptures was written for our teaching. So we, then we can say then that the Bible contains that which is taught, but the Bible is also our teacher. The Bible, the Word of God, is the doctrine of right teaching, the teacher of right teaching. So not only is it the, the content of what's being taught, but it is also the teacher. And as long as we hold fast to his teachings, 
Timothy is being encouraged to do that, hold fast to those teachings, then he will ensure through those teachings that those who hear him have a path to eternal life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He writes to uh, Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy in, in the first letter. He says, till I come, Paul, till I come giving attention, give attention to the reading, the exhortation to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So the scriptures are profitable as the teacher of right teaching. So the next section I'd like to call uh, guilty as charged, or... Uh, the uh, Belshazzar story in the Old Testament when the writing on the wall said uh, that uh, you were weighed in the balance and found wanting. See, not only is the Scripture profitable for teaching, but God's Word is also profitable for reproof. Reproof of ourselves and also of others and also reproof of any type of false teachings that we might have. You see, nobody likes to be criticized. I know I don't. Um, we always go through this long mental process of justification of, of how we approach things. And we want to keep a... Uh, a social face of acceptability. Uh, we want people to accept us. Uh, we want other people to think well of us. And so we go through this process of trying to justify our actions and our behaviors uh, in public. However, when that public face is challenged by someone, that can make us uncomfortable and sometimes it can make us even angry but what if that critique is valid? We still might feel angry or even uncomfortable around that person, but whether we admitted it or not, somewhere deep inside we know that that critique was true. And that truth overcomes our personal justifications and hopefully brings us to a point that convinces us that we need to change. This is the biblical idea behind the word reproof, conviction. The Word of God provides that truthful critique of our beliefs and actions, just like a lawyer in a courtroom who produces convincing proof in a trial in order to convict the wrongdoer. Now, that lawbreaker may not publicly admit his guilt. However, the truth still powerfully indicates to him and to others that he's been found out and there's no way of getting around it. I remember when I was 
uh, a kid, I used to like to watch the courtroom drama Perry Mason. And Perry Mason was a defense lawyer and his defendant inadvertently uh, always uh, every week would be uh, brought into jail and then brought into court and on trial for murder or doing something. And it was uh, Perry Mason's job to not only, well, he took it on himself to prove who did it. His job was to make sure that his defendant was uh, not proven guilty of that particular charge. But the way Perry Mason would always work, he'd have, ultimately, he'd have the wrongdoer uh, in, the, uh, in the courtroom stand under oath, and he would be pointing out, you did this, or didn't you do that, or didn't you say this, or at this, at this point in time, you did this, but then you did this, so you're the one that did it. And by the time Perry's finished with his... Uh, legal assault on this witness in the witness stand, he finally, the witness finally breaks down and says, okay, yeah, I did it. You know, the truth was so convicting and so convincing that the lawbreaker finally knew that he couldn't get around it. And uh, that's why I liked watching Perry Mason. It just seemed to be his secret superpower to make sure that the, the bad guy always confessed. <laughs> And uh, I know in reality today that, that doesn't always happen, but it did it in the TV. So anyway, that being said, the power and the, the way that the Holy Spirit moves through his scriptures, when we approach the scriptures to teach us, the scriptures teach us where we have been wrong in our thinking and in our actions. And so that conviction there is, and believe it or not, it is an advantage for us. You know, you're thinking, why is it an advantage to be convicted? <laughs> See, the Scriptures and the Gospel does not leave us in our conviction to be condemned. The other advantage of the Scriptures that's pointed out right here not only are we convicted, but the scriptures are also profitable for correction. So then the question would be then, the crook has been, correct, uh, been convicted. So when is a crook not a crook? I remember a song back in the, the late 90s by Susan Ashton, and uh, the song was called The Crooked Man. And here's a line from that song. <clears throat> well, there was a crooked man, and he walked a crooked mile. He lived a crooked life behind a crooked smile. See, in our culture, lawbreakers are known as crooks. And it's because of their crooked dealings with people and their crooked dealings, uh, their crooked lifestyles uh, that are contrary to what our society calls the straight and narrow. Now those descriptives <clears throat> harken back to the remnants of our society when our society was informed by the scriptures. 
You see, in all of the many words that the scriptures use for what we translate in English as sin or iniquity, the root meaning of one of those words for sin is called being bent or twisted, perverted, or crooked. In other words, sinners do not deal straight with God or with people, with themselves. Instead, sinners turn from the right path that God has established for all people and walk according to their own bent. They walk to the beat of a different drummer, typically of their own making and desires. So what the Bible states, however, is that without God and without the sacrificial work of his son, Jesus Christ, all people are crooks. All of us are. There is no one who does the straight thing or the straight or the right thing before God without Christ. Paul writes this as he's quoting from the Old Testament Psalms. He says in his letter to the Romans, that is it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside and together have, been, have become useless. There is none who does good. And just in case you're wondering if there's any room for wiggling there, he ends it again like the beginning. There is not even one. We have all turned aside because of our fallen natures. They prevent us from doing the right thing and going straight without God. Where all humanity has become useless because of our crookedness before God, the scriptures in contrast are useful and profitable to help the crooked man go straight. See, Paul is specific to the scripture's profitability for correction. The English word correct has that root in it called wrecked. And that means that, well, you've heard the word before in other sentences, uh, if somebody wants to rectify a situation, they want to make it right. They want to straighten it out. So the, uh, the Latin of that, that root, rect, just means to lead straight. The writer of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, this is a famous one. It was actually my grandmother's favorite verse. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct, there's that root word again, direct. He will direct your path. He will make your path straight. Wherever you have turned aside to where you have followed your own bent, God promises as we acknowledge him, as we seek him out, he will make our crooked paths straight. He will make our crooked hearts right with him. Now, the, in this same verse, uh, 
3.17, 2 Timothy 3.17, where it says uh, that the scriptures are profitable for correction. The Greek word for correction in this case is epinorthosis. And that root word ortho is that part that means to set straight. That's the same uh, root word where we get the word orthodontist. And what is an orthodontist's job? Is to make your teeth straight. So, of course, uh, going to the dentist to make your teeth straight isn't all that pleasurable sometimes. Uh, But with correction coming from the Lord, making our lives go straight and making our heart go straight for him, that straightening out of our lives has maybe not uh, very pleasurable at times, but it has eternal benefits because he is making us into the likeness of his son. He is straightening us out as we are in relationship with Christ. See, in a world that is suffering from all types of heartache and pain, and at the same time knowing somewhere deep inside that things are not the way that they are supposed to be, only God and his word has the power to set things right. Only God promises in truth to make the crooked straight. So, so far we've seen the scriptures are profitable for teaching, right teaching, for convicting us when we are crooked (laughs) and for straightening us out. The scriptures are also advantageous for us for training in righteousness. Now, in the Christian life, a lot of people are okay with um, the scriptures saying, you know, the training in righteousness, because, I mean, that's, that's our goal. We want to be trained to be right um, in our relationship with God and with others. That's the goal of the Christian life. Some people, however, some Christians are uncomfortable uh, if they feel that the scriptures are also teaching uh, outside of what they consider a religious life. But I would challenge us this morning to think that, uh, you know, God, the creator of life, the creator of the universe, the creator of us, and placed us in his creation for a specific purpose. I don't think that we can separate a spiritual Christian religious life away from everyday living. The scriptures certainly don't teach that and and don't indicate to us that that is permissible. See, Paul is saying here that the scriptures are profitable for training in righteousness. And we'll get to the purpose of that in a minute. If you think of it this way, when when I was in the Navy, when I first got into boot camp, you know, I had long hair and, and uh, uh, 
all of us did, went into a boot camp and, and the company commander would come out and, and yell at us and, and uh, tell us, uh, you know, welcome to the Navy, you're, uh, you're now mine <laughs> and uh, I'm now your mother and you're going to learn to do things the right way uh, or else. <laughs> and so he would go through a process of training us every single day of the, that time in boot camp of the way to do things right and the wrong things that we shouldn't do. He was taking young uh, civilian kids and training them to be disciplined warriors. Now the training there included, we had to be trained so much that uh, by the end of the period uh, that our actions were not even uh, thought through. We were doing it just by instinct because he was teaching us how we needed to be able to follow orders of our officers and how to be able to fight in a naval vessel during wartime. And so there are certain actions that needed to happen immediately without thought and that discipline in us every single day, training us what to do and what not to do in specific situations. You see, that's what the scriptures do for us. They train us, the scriptures train us what to hold on to, what the truth is, how to do certain things, and what not to do. It's a holistic thing, both on the negative side and the positive side. I know growing up uh, as, as a young child and as a teenager, the way that I saw Christianity was, thou shalt not do this, and don't do this, don't do that, all the way through not knowing what I should do. But see, the scriptures are holistic. See, when God tells us, when, when Jesus reminded us of the law, saying, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, he was telling us what to do. The scriptures tell us a holistic thing, not what we shouldn't do all the time, but also what we should do. So any type of training that is pleasing to God not only encourages us to do the right things, but it also discourages us on the things that we ought not do that are not pleasing to God. That's training in righteousness every single day of our lives, the way that we approach our family, the way that we approach uh, the people in our communities, the way that we approach people at work, at school, the way that we have relationships in the church. Training in righteousness. So this is the positive and the negative. This is why the writer of Hebrews states that God disciplines. This is the same word, uh, Greek word, that Paul is using in 2 Timothy. He disciplines his children. He says, you have not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. 
and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. For it is discipline that you endure. God deals with you as children. For what son or what child is there from whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers that disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? And he finishes this by saying, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Being a disciple of Christ takes discipline in everyday living. So we've seen the advantage of Scripture for, uh, for teaching and for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So why is all of this important? For what purpose is this? Well, Paul tells us, he says that the, uh, it's so that we would be trained uh, in righteousness, so that we would be fully equipped to do every good work. So the aim of the scriptures then is to prepare us. And Paul is saying to Timothy, be prepared, it's coming. I remember when I was uh, a teenager, my dad took my brother and I to uh, a camping trip in the Quetico Park system of lakes up in Canada. And we uh, went to an outfitter, and the outfitter gave us a canoe, it gave us backpacks, gave us uh, food packets for every single day of our journey, and those food packs we could supplement with our own fishing if we wanted to, but we were fully equipped and fully uh, outfitted for this trip. And so we uh, go on our trip, and we're really enjoying uh, nature and going in the canoes. And in between the lakes, we'd have to pick up our canoe and our bags and walk in, bet- in the trails in between the lakes. And we had done this for almost 50 miles into the park system. And then when we were in the middle of one of the bigger lakes, a storm hit. And that storm eventually tipped our canoe over and all of us fell over. All of our bags, um, all of our equipment. And so we uh, hung on to the overturned canoe and tried to make our way to a nearby island. When we finally got there, we made an assessment of the damage that was done. And we've, you know, we had a little bit of food left, 
uh, we had uh, our canoe. Uh, we had our map, but when we opened up the map to take a look at it, uh, lo and behold, the, the map was not waterproofed. <laughs> so all of the inks had bled all over the paper, and it was not readable anymore. So here we are 50 miles in the middle of nowhere, and we had no direction. And so I know my dad was very concerned on how we would be able to get home safely. Um, the responsibility of a father for his children in these type of life endangering situations is very serious. And uh, so uh, my dad tried his best to follow the path to go back, uh, trying to remember in his mind all the little different uh, lakes and, and the passages in between the lakes. And, and inevitably, we made a, a couple of wrong turns and we were lost. And it was about maybe the seventh day into this trip that we started hearing noises in, in, in the background. See, for the whole trip uh, into, this, into the park, we hadn't seen anybody at all. We were by ourselves. And so, but this noise in the background seemed like it was actually people starting to come our way. And we were getting a little excited. And, and here they come down uh, in the canoe uh, in the little section of, uh, looked like a little river section connecting the two lakes. And it was a Boy Scout troop. Be prepared. <laughs> My dad uh, approached the scoutmaster and told him our situation. And the scoutmaster very generously gave us uh, one of his maps. He had quite a few, and they were waterproofed. And so um, through that then, uh, we were able to navigate our way back and made it home safely. You see, the scriptures, what Paul is saying to Timothy is that, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The words here, equipped or competent or perfect, complete, the word also means in uh, another English translation, adequate. Adequate meaning uh, from the Latin adequare, meaning uh, to make equal. See, my dad didn't think at, at the end of this, uh, right before the Boy Scout trip, he didn't think that he was adequate to be able to get us home. But the scriptures make the person of God adequate, competent, equipped, completely outfitted for what? for every good work, not just religious work, but for every good work. In these times, 
when our culture is decaying around us and is darkening, if you will. Uh, things that are th uh, supposed to be thought of as good are now thought as uh, being evil. Things that are evil are now being thought of as being the right thing. We as Christians, as our Lord says, are to be like a city on a hill, be light in the darkness. Why? So that when people see our good works, they will give glory to our Father in heaven. That's what Jesus said. See, when we get into these, uh, these oncoming years and the laws in our culture are changing swiftly, to where even being a Christian inside of a church, let alone outside of the church, will be considered as uh, either irre irrelevant or uh, being hateful to our society. Christians are already thought of as being uh, ignorant and bigoted and hateful uh, because we disagree with uh, the culture's alternative lifestyles. That's coming. But in this time then, this is more time that we need to have to cling to the Scriptures, to cling to the right teachings of Scripture, to cling to our faith, because we know where we've gotten that faith from, and it has been um, encouraged through the Holy Spirit and has brought life into our hearts, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through all of the twists and turns, all of the storms in life that we have, the scriptures, the word of God, is the lamp for our feet and the light for our path. And that map of life that will bring us to a point that we are living a life pleasing to God until he comes back. And when he comes back, then, we no longer need that map because we're safely home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good and in you there is no darkness. No no darkness at all. And you have fully equipped us to lead a life that looks like your son, Jesus Christ. He led a life perfect and pleasing before you, which is our goal, Lord, for those of us that have been bought and purchased by you through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is our desire to live our lives in such a way that people bring glory to you. Help us to love your word even more this next year. Help us to be vibrantly studying your word, our roadmap for life here on this earth. And that in that, we learn more about you 
because it is that knowledge of you that brings eternal life. All this we ask through our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. And it's his name we pray.